Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 38, 1 Samuel chapters 23 and 24. Well, we ended uh, last time as David and his growing group of political dissenters and socially disenfranchised rescued the food supply of the Judean city of Keilah from the Philistines. Now the Philistines didn't attack the city or the residents of Keilah. They merely showed up in force to confiscate the harvested and threshed grain for their own economic benefit. Now an honest reading of the methods of the Philistines and other nations like them in that era reveals that many of them weren't interested in acquiring land or building empires. They just wanted food and wealth and sometimes people to build up their own nations. Most of the time they weren't bloodthirsty barbarians that enjoyed a good slaughter, although certainly some of them were that ilk. Even the great Nebuchadnezzar, who would lead Babylon against Judah some 400 years after David's time, came primarily to take the Jews' wealth and their most educated and able back up to Babylon to use to elevate his nation. He didn't come to destroy, but to confiscate and to build a modern empire. Destruction usually occurred as some kind of a reprisal for a, a breach of promise. Well, let's reread uh, a portion of 1 Samuel 23 to get started this morning. Um, open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 23, which is page uh, 324, and we're going to start reading at verse 13. So David and his men, now about 600, got up, left Kalah, and went wherever they could. It was told to Shaul that David had escaped from Kalah, so he called off the expedition. David stayed in the desert strongholds, remaining in the hills of the Zif desert. Shaul kept trying to find him, but God did not hand him over to him. David saw that Shaul had mounted another expedition to seek his life, and David was then at Horesh in the Zif desert. Yohanatan, Shaul's son, set out and went to David at Horesh to encourage him in God. He said to him, Don't be afraid, because my father's forces will not find you. You will be king over Israel. I will be second to you. Shaul, my father, knows this too. Then the two of them made a covenant in the presence of Adonai, after which David stayed at Horish and Jonathan returned home. And the people of Zeph came to Saul at Gibeah and said, David's hiding himself with us in the strongholds of Horish at Hachilah Hill, south of Yeshmon. So now, king, since you've wanted so much to come down, come down. Our part will be to turn him over to you. And Shaul said, May Adonai bless you for showing me compassion. Please, now go and make still more certain exactly where he is and who has seen him there because I've been told he's very tricky. So look closely. Find out where all of his hiding places are. Come back when you're sure. 
Then I will go with you, and if he's there in that territory, I'll search till I find him among all the thousands of Judah. Well, they set out and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men had gone on to the Maon Desert in the Arba, south of Yeshmon. Saul and his men went searching for him. David was told. So he came down to the rock and stayed in the Maon Desert. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the Maon Desert. Shaul went along one side of the mountain while David and his men went along the other. David was hurrying to get away from Saul while Saul and his men were trying to surround David and his men in order to capture them. But then a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry, come, the Philistines are invading the country. So Saul stopped chasing David and went to fight the Philistines. Therefore they call that place Selah Hamach Hamach Lechot, Rock of Divisions. No doubt David and his men stayed in Keilah to guard against some type of Philistine reprisal against the people for thwarting their taking of the grain. Also probably to enjoy the comforts of city life for a few days after spending so long in caves and camps. But when David got word that Saul learned of what had occurred at Keilah and that David and his men were staying inside that walled city, he knew Saul would come after him. So his first thought was, would the leadership of Keilah stand with David or simply turn him over to the Israelite king to avoid any kind of confrontation? Well, the Lord, through the Urim and Tumim stones that were now administered by Aviatar, that sole survivor, of the priests of Nob, unequivocally said, yes, the people of Keilah will turn David over to Saul. With no remaining option, David led his men out of Keilah before Saul's expeditionary forces could arrive. Now he apparently moved from stronghold to stronghold out in the inhospitable desert terrain of Ziph to try and stay one step ahead of Shaul. Now, stronghold is metzad in uh, Hebrew. It's not usually indicating a fortress per se, but, ra- but under rare circumstances it can. Rather, a metzad or a metzada is usually a, the high ground uh, of an area that affords a, a natural defensive barrier that makes attacking it more difficult. Often these metzada had water supplies. And by the way, notice the name for the famous Dead Sea Plateau that scores of thousands of visitors ascend every year is Masada. Masada is merely a Roman way to pronounce the Hebrew word Metsada, which means fortress. Now we're going to run across another term a lot, wilderness. Midbar in Hebrew. And it generally means desert. Now, particularly as pertains to Canaan, especially to Judah, the wilderness means the vast Judean desert that's um, called the Negev. Now, Zif was not another desert. 
Rather, it gives us a more specific location within the Negev. Zif was a town about 12 miles southeast of uh, Kelah, all right, about five miles south southeast of Hebron. Therefore, the 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 Zif desert was was basically the area surrounding the desert area surrounding Zif. Now, the end of verse 14 makes it very clear that Saul kept pursuing David, but it was the Lord who prevented him from finding David. The anti-king wasn't going to be allowed to harm God's anointed king. Even so, you know, Saul wasn't an inept man. He wasn't without resources. And he soon found out David's whereabouts. Verse 15 says that David was at Horesh in the area of Zeph. What it actually says is David was at Ha-Horesh, which means the woods. All right, and therefore, this merely means he was currently camped in some wooden area, wooded area. King Saul's son Jonathan, upon hearing the news, hurried to David and he warned him. But also, he came to encourage David. Now, another way to look at it is that Jonathan came to reaffirm his commitment to David and to the covenant they'd made between them. Jonathan counseled David not to be afraid. You see... <laughs> David was, after all, human. He'd been on the run for months. He had no interest in becoming a martyr. Nowhere in Canaan was truly safe. But yet, David had been told by the prophet Gad that Jehovah set the limits of David's escape path to the territorial boundaries of the twelve tribes, or even more specifically to the southern areas controlled by the tribe of Judah. David would have to go forward in faith. He'd have to trust God completely in this. David's Psalms show us that while he always hoped for deliverance from Saul, he also realized that God in his own divine sovereignty could decide on an outcome that David wouldn't find very welcome. Now, David was undoubtedly, undoubtedly grateful for Jonathan's arrival and his words of encouragement. But you know, these weren't idle words of human sunshine being spoken by David's dearest friend. Rather, what Jonathan said, he truly believed to his core. Jonathan told David not to fear that Saul's military wasn't going to find him, meaning to capture him. And that David was destined to be the king of Israel. Nothing on earth could stop it. He told David that despite his father's actions, that Saul too knew. He knew that David was God's anointed and that his time of reign was coming to an end. It's at this point that David started to become self-aware that he was destined to be the king of Israel. He didn't deny it. He didn't deflect it when Jonathan spoke about it. If we see this as a pattern, then it's not surprising that a full millennia into the future, David's descendant, Yeshua, was a young man before he began to be self-aware of his destiny 
and who he was. And as we read the gospel accounts, it seems to portray that he only came to internalize and truly accept his own divinity and his mission bit by bit over time. Yohanan reminded David that he considered himself, as he says, second to you. Meaning that while he expected to be second in command once David was king, that it would be David's dynasty that was ruling, um, not Saul's. So Jonathan would be serving strictly at David's pleasure. The Hebrew word for second in command is misne. Misne. It's the same word we'll find in the book of Esther in chapter 10, verse 3, referring to Mordecai as the Misne to King Xerxes. So it definitely carries the sense of an official position, not unlike Joseph when he was the Misne, the second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt. Now we ought to note that Jonathan wasn't downcast. He wasn't passively upset at the concept of losing out on becoming king of Israel or at giving up his personal authority to David. Rather, he seemed to be excited, optimistic at what lay ahead with his dearest friend at the helm. It was a lot more mature and realistic Jonathan that we see now. The Lord was about to bring in a new era and Jonathan was less concerned about being in charge than being in harmony with all that God was going to do. Now sadly, Jonathan was correct, but only in spirit, not in letter. While David indeed would go on to become Israel's first true king, Jonathan would be second to him only in the abstract. Because in the near future, Jonathan would die in battle at Gilboa alongside his father, and David would be heartbroken at this. This exchange that we're reading here between Jonathan and David in 1 Samuel 23 is the final time the two would ever again see one another. Now I'm certain that many of you are seeing several wonderful lessons and principles on display here. But the one I'd like to comment on is this. The New Testament makes it clear that those who trust in Yeshua for salvation are his friends and that we carry within us his great commission and we carry the power to carry it out. But always, always, he is first and we are second to him. Our future is tied to his, but his is more important than ours. Too much the church has made an effort to make Jehovah a kindly, super tolerant grandfather in order that he is more appealing to us and especially to the unwashed. Too much, we are told, that our personal desires and our welfare are his overriding concerns. That is not true. 
Nowhere does the Bible establish that God puts us above all else. Rather, the Lord's own holiness comes first. His Messiah, Yeshua, immediately thereafter. The establishment of the kingdom of God next, if those three are actually even separable. And then we as individual believers. Just as Jonathan realized and wholeheartedly accepted his position in God's hierarchy as subservient to God's anointed one, so must we, if we're going to fulfill our roles in redemptive history. We have to realize who we are as much as who we're not. Now verse 19 explains that the people of Zeph, who were members, by the way, of the tribe of Judah, were even more antagonistic against David than were the city dwellers of uh, Kelah. It seems they, that they informed Saul that David and his men were hiding in their area. Perhaps they just didn't want trouble between them and Saul. Certainly they, along with everybody else, had heard that Saul murdered every one of God's priests at Nob from the mere suspicion that they had helped David. Or perhaps they just didn't want this, this gang of sorts to exist in their neighborhood. Either way, Saul was most grateful and genuinely touched for their display of loyalty to him. In fact, the spiritually irrational, self-delusional king actually calls on God, on the God of Israel to bless the Ziphites for what they've just done. And Saul sees it as showing compassion to him. I mean, these are the warmest words of praise that we find Saul speaking to the men of Zeph. Ones that a king wouldn't usually bestow on his subjects. He actually thanks them for their compassion towards him. The Hebrew word is chamal. And it means compassion in the sense of showing pity. I mean, this is very humble speech. But Saul has sent his military on wild goose chases so often, trying to find David, not realizing, of course, that Jehovah was the one who was orchestrating his inability to find David, that he didn't want to do it yet again. So he asks, with these Zephites, please go back, double check as to exactly where David's whereabouts, uh, of David's whereabouts, because David is quite the master of stealth. And sure enough, in God's providence, David and his men have felt the need to move on from Zeph, and they'd already left the area for the Ma'on Desert and the Arabah. Now, Ma'on is the modern-day Tel Ma'in, located about eight miles south of Hebron. It sits atop a hill that David would have given David just a commanding view of the area all around it. Now, the Arabah is a, a, a barren stretch, generally, that basically follows the Jordan Rift Valley all the way from up north, all, right, all the way down to uh, the Red Sea. And David's men weren't inside the village of Ma'on. 
they were in the desert area on its outskirts. When David heard that Saul and his men were approaching, he again moved, this time to a rocky area that he figured would make it difficult for Saul's men to find him. The area that he went to is strewn with caves, large and small. And as Saul's men inspected one cave, David's men would move into another, only to move back into the ones that had already been inspected once Saul's men left. It was kind of an ancient game of whack-a-mole. All right? Only a very deadly one. The king had received some good intelligence on the exact location of David and his militia. And so he began to surround the area that he thought David was in, employing kind of a, a pincer's movement. And Saul's army divided. They began circling around from the two sides of this rock crag where David was hiding. Well, David's trapped. I mean, Saul's move was brilliant. The king was as spiritually irrational as ever, but evil doesn't mean stupid. Just as Hitler overwhelmed Europe with brilliant battle tactics and superior weaponry that stunned the world, so Saul inherently knew just how to box David in. But David's fate wasn't in Saul's hands, nor was it in David's. In an impossible to orchestrate bit of timing, the Philistines decided to attack Israel just as Saul's men were ready to pounce. Undoubtedly, these Philistines had observed King Saul, Israel's commander-in-chief, once again leaving his country vulnerable as he set off with his army to pursue this one man, David. Messengers rushed to tell the king of this development and frustrated yet again, Saul has no choice but to immediately halt his operation, run back to defend his kingdom. But isn't this really how the Lord regularly works? I mean, in a never-ending series of divinely ordained coincidences, unsuspecting men, the wicked and the righteous, are accomplishing Jehovah's invisible will. David was miraculously delivered from certain capture and death because God, in this case, was using the Philistines. As a result of this event, the place came to be called Selah Hamachlachot, the, cra- the crag or, or rock of divisions. Okay? It was in remembrance of this day that God put up a heavenly divide between David's men and Saul there in the rocky hills of Maon. Let's move on to chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 325. From there... David went up and lived in the strongholds of Ein Gedi. And when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told that David was in the desert at Ein Gedi. 
And Shaul took 3,000 men chosen from all Israel. He went searching for David and his men on the cliffs where the mountain goats are. Near some sheep pens along the way was a cave, and Saul went inside to relieve himself. It happened that David and his men were sitting in the recesses at the back of the cave, and David's men said to him, Look, the day has come that Adonai told you about when he said to you, I'll turn your enemy over to you and you will do to him whatever seems good to you. Then David stole over unobserved, cut off the corner of Shaul's cloak. But after doing this, David felt remorse over cutting Shaul's garment. And he said to his men, Adonai forbid that I should do such a thing to my Lord, Adonai's anointed, as to raise my hand against him. After all, he is Adonai's anointed. And by saying this, David stopped his men. He wouldn't let them do anything to Saul. Saul got up, left the cave, and went on his way. Then David too got up and went outside the cave, where he called after Saul, My Lord, the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say David is out to harm you? Here, today, you've seen with your own eyes that Adonai put you in my power there in the cave. Some of my men, some of my men said I should kill you, but I spared you. I said, I won't raise my hand against my Lord because he is Adonai's anointed. Moreover, my father, look here in my hand, the corner of your cloak. By the fact that I only cut off a piece of your cloak and didn't kill you, you can see and understand I have no plan to do harm or rebel. I haven't sinned against you, even though you're seeking every chance you get to take my life. May Adonai judge between you and me, and may Adonai avenge me on you. May I, uh, but I will not lay a hand on you. As the old saying has it, out of the wicked come wickedness. I'll not lay a hand on you. The king of Israel has come on a campaign. After whom? Who are you chasing? A dead dog. A single flea. Adonai be the judge. Let him decide between you and me. May he take my side and rescue me from your power. Well, after David had finished speaking to Saul, Saul said, Is that your voice, my son David? Saul cried out and he wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, because you have treated me well while I have been treating you badly. You have made it clear to me today that you have done me good. For when Adonai put my fate in your hands, you didn't kill me. A man finds his enemy and lets him go unharmed. May Adonai reward you well for what you did to me today. Now I'm certain that you will indeed become king and that the kingship of Israel will be established in your hands. So swear to me, by Adonai, that you will not kill my descendants after I die or blot out my name from my father's family. David swore to Saul. Saul went home. But David and his men went back up to the stronghold. Well, David moves his men to the area of Ein Gedi. Very difficult area. 
to operate in militarily. David, uh, Ein Gedi means the spring of the young goat. And it's located on the west bank of the Dead Sea. Now, Ein Gedi was without doubt the most important and most permanent spring-fed oasis in Judah's vast desert wilderness. And for those of you who have ventured there with me, you know that in the midst of those sterile, ancient, rocky hills is this little bit of heaven, today known as David's Falls. Almost any time of the day or night, you can see oryx, mountain goats, conies, small deer, practically a zoo of desert-dwelling creatures who are attracted to the green foliage and abundant water. Now, what's not apparent to most that come today, however, is that the Dead Sea that is perhaps, I don't know, a mile or so away from the approach to Ein Gedi was much closer in David's day. In fact, Ein Gedi would have been considered waterfront property. 3,000 years ago, the Dead Sea, just as lifeless then as now, was around twice today's size. Many of the better known desert communities that we read about in the Bible, and we can still visit today, were actually built on the shores of the Dead Sea. Some Bibles will call it the Salt Sea. Jericho, Qumran, Ein Gedi, these were all adjacent to that vast pool of mineral water that would also have even lapped at the pathway up to the ancient fortress of Masada. The hills surrounding Ein Gedi are peppered with caves. Locating David was going to be like finding a needle in a haystack for Saul. Thus we read in verse 3 that Shaul assembled 3,000 men to go after David's 600. This was a search and destroy mission with the emphasis on search. It was a huge area and small garrisons would be needed uh, uh, as they would um, check out each hiding place one would have to be left so that David's men simply didn't vacate one and then when they saw the troops coming, return back to the same place they just left. Now there's an underlying theme. Now let me point out something too. If you've been paying attention to what's going on in Afghanistan and Pakistan, this same strategy that Shaul is using is what they've begun to employ there leaving small garrisons of troops in caves that are likely hangouts. Well, there, there's an underlying theme to this chapter that we need to recognize because it answers a very important question. Did David actively try to wrest the throne away from Saul? For centuries after this tradition was created and retold and later on written down, this was going to be a critical theological and practical point for the Jews. 
Because if David was simply another would-be king who gathered an army of tribal loyalists and overthrew a sitting king from another tribe, then his status as being the anointed one of God was questionable. I think you can see that. Understand that. Politics was as important then as it is to us in our time. If making David the king over all Israel was perceived by future Israelites as an issue of simply replacing the northern tribal king, Saul of Benjamin, with a southern tribal king, David of Judah, then this wasn't really an act of God as the tradition claims. It was just the result of typical human politics and the desire for power. As Saul led his men in the search for David, the call of nature caused him to duck inside a nearby cave to relieve himself. Of all the places he could have chosen, wouldn't you just know that this was the cave where David and many of his men were hiding? Stunned at their good fortune, the men alert David, certain that God has handed Saul over to them to end this deadly cat and mouse game for good. Verse 5 has David's men saying, Look, the day has come that Adonai told you about when he said to you, I'll turn your enemy over to you. Now, first of all, there is nothing recorded of any such prediction that God made to David. And second, this may sound kind of like a prophetic fulfillment but it was really just rather customary Middle Eastern conversation. It's expressing the surprise that such an unexpected and serendipitous opportunity would come along, and thus it can only be that God has caused it. And this proves that he must be on their side. See, Middle Eastern banter is often couched using religious overtones, but nothing particularly spiritual was intended. So now we encounter one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. David indeed saw this as an opportunity, but not as an opportunity to kill or to acquire the throne. So while Saul was indisposed, David snuck up behind him, carefully cut off a piece of the hem of his skirt. What was cut in Hebrew is kanaf. It means the wings or the extremities of a garment. It carries with it a a deeper meaning depending on its context. In this case, kanaf is denoting the actual hem of the garment and not the nature of the garment as it does in the act of Boaz spreading his kanaf over Ruth. In either case, there is significance. It was customary that the hem of one's garment was symbolic of that person's station in life. The poorest had no hem whatsoever. The cloth was merely cut and had just left to fray. The next class up wore a garment made of similar cloth as the poorest, but it, it got folded over and sewn, forming a hem so that it not only lasted longer, but it looked nicer. The wealthier 
had fancy hems with colored thread and even some decorations on it. Kings and potentates had the most decorative, wide and expansive hems. Since the more wealth one had, the more authority that person carried, the hem was much more than a mere decoration. It was not unlike the well-recognized stripes of rank sewn onto a soldier's uniform, or the various belt colors worn as signs of achievement by the adherents of the various martial arts. At times, hems even took on a sacred overtone. Thus, after David had cut off a piece of Saul's hem, he felt great pangs of remorse. He told his men that he'd done a terrible thing, that he'd raised his hand against God's anointed king. David had shown no respect for the office of the king of Israel. And so he had committed a a great insult against Saul. You know, killing a person as they were doing their business, stealing from them as they relieved themselves, even looking upon them during such a time was well beyond indelicate in those days. So much more so for royalty. Such a thing just wasn't done, not even to your enemy. David ordered that Saul wasn't to be further disturbed, let alone attacked and killed. Well, another God principle now just leaps off these pages for us. Not every opportunity that comes our way is of God. Not every opportunity that comes our way is of God. Not everything that would give us great personal gain is to be accepted, nor is it necessarily God-sent. However tempting, an open path to success that comes as a result of our own handiwork or at a time of our own choosing doesn't mean that it's necessarily in harmony with God's will. It's always necessary to examine God's principles and prayerfully seek God's purpose for whatever opportunities comes along in our lives. They could as easily be a test of faith and discernment as an unmerited blessing. They could even be a trap from the evil one. Have you ever found a wallet with lots of money in it, just at a time when you were in dire financial straits. You just finished praying for God's provision when you look down and there lies some stitched and folded leather with corners of green paper flapping in the breeze. The person's driver's license is in it. They lived far away. How would anyone ever know if you merely took the cash and dropped the wallet with its credit card still in it into a post office drop box. Surely this is an answer to prayer. The person who lost it's probably pretty well off judging from the amount of cash and the number of credit cards. What a marvelous gift 
just at the time you need it the most. Now, while this example I just gave you isn't particularly difficult to judge, many others aren't quite this apparent. David encountered just such a situation. Saul's intent was to murder him. God's intent was for David to be Israel's king. What could possibly be wrong in killing Saul in this case? Saul, the anti-king, being handed over to David, the righteous king. It's such an unexpected circumstance. Surely, surely this was the moment. But David inherently knew that murder on his part was not the answer. God hadn't told David that he was going to be king. Other men had said it to him. God certainly never told David to kill the current king, even though in some ways it seemed justifiable. No, even though he and his men couldn't understand it at the time, it was not for Saul to die at the hand of David or any other Israelite for that matter. Thus, the underlying and critical theological and practical question I asked at the outset of this chapter, did David actively try to take the throne away from Saul? It's been answered. An opportunity to kill Saul, obviously arranged by Jehovah as a test, and then immediately assumed the throne, was refused by David because he didn't view himself as Saul's enemy, nor as one who sought to rule over Israel. This story would stand now as proof that David's rise to the throne was neither by his own design nor by his own hand. It was a divine act of the will of the God of Israel, and David was simply an obedient servant in the whole thing. In verse 9, Shaul is leaving the cave, oblivious to what's been playing out. And David follows him at a safe distance. Outside, David shouts at Saul. He prostrates himself to show loyalty, humility. He asks Saul why he's listening to others, telling him lies about David. Supposedly, Saul's counsel telling him that David wants to kill him. Now, I, I don't know if David is contorting the reality simply to show deference to the king, or he honestly thinks that it was Saul's court that had convinced poor, naive Saul of a great lie. Because what we have read thus far in the Holy Scriptures is the opposite. Saul's court, his military commanders, his own family, the entire priesthood, were all befuddled by Saul's insistence that David was an enemy of the state. Such a position had much to do with the extermination of the priests at Nob. David shows King Saul the piece of the hem that he had cut from his royal garment as a demonstration that he could have easily slain him had he chosen to. In fact, 
Just as King Saul's men had supposedly urged the king to kill David, this of course was a fantasy, so David's men urged David to take advantage of the opportunity and kill Saul. This indeed was the case. The contrast is obvious. Saul decided to take his men's advice, but David decided the opposite. Saul had no problem with the idea of murder. David detested the thought. Saul had no regard for the throne of Israel as anything but his personal right and treasure. David saw it as sacred and its occupant as God's anointed. So the stark differences between the natures of the anti-king and the righteous king keep piling up. And they create a pattern that is designed to help us discern when that man of lawlessness who claims to be the Messiah makes his appearance. Okay, we'll continue with this next time.